can I just say, <clears throat> if my voice will hold out for the next few minutes, uh, can I just say it's been a joy uh, for me to be here, uh, to uh, relive a bit of nostalgia for me, coming back to the castle, uh, but to see that it's in very safe hands, uh, and uh, it's been a joy to, to hang out with you guys this weekend, get to know some of you. Um, it would be great if you could open uh, Philippians again um, and keep it open in front of you as we'll be refer- referring fairly constantly uh, to that as we go through. But again, as I like to do, uh, if you'll indulge me, uh, we'll pray again and ask for God's help for me as I speak <clears throat> and for us all uh, as we listen. Father, the words of that song are still ringing in our minds, and so we just pray, please, that you would indeed speak to us, O Lord, that we would receive the food of your holy word. Father, we pray, please, that as we open up your word again, that we would see more uh, of your character and your beauty. Uh, We would rejoice more in the grace of the gospel uh, received to us through the work of the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, please, we ask that you would indeed shape and fashion us with the truth. Please change us as we fill our minds with these things that Paul says. Um, Inspire and change us, we pray, by the work of your Spirit. So please help me again as I speak and help us all as we listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the seasonal flu virus... Um, uh, it, it affects apparently up to 15 to 30 percent of the population. So almost one in three people is going to get the seasonal flu at some point. But when you look at the statistics a little bit more detail, you, it's pretty miserable if you get it. Uh, if anyone gets it to any degree, it's fairly miserable. You know, the, the sore throat and the blocked nose and the sore sinuses, sore head, feeling shivery, and oh, it's terrible. We've all had it, I think. Um, but actually, it's, it's quite serious for, for some vulnerable folks, whether very young or, or very old, and apparently it kills up to 400,000 people in the UK every year. Now, I want to, want to talk this morning about another disease, another disease, a disease that is even more widespread than that. It affects more people. And it's more serious and more deadly than influenza. Uh, And it's a disease that uh, was labelled by James Oliver, uh, or sorry, Oliver James, wrong way around, Oliver James, uh, in a recent book that he wrote called Affluenza. Affluenza, right? Uh, And he labels, he wasn't the first to coin this term, uh, but he did make it famous with his book uh, a few years ago on the bestsellers list, uh, and he, it's, it's a disease, he maintains, a virus, uh, and if you catch it, you will end up being deluded into thinking that being affluent, being rich, is actually the road to happiness and fulfillment uh, and joy. Uh, he talks about uh, the symptoms uh, of affluenza. Uh, the symptoms are stress and anxiety. Uh, The symptoms are feeling rushed and overspent, feeling unfulfilled and empty. And we're, again, deluded into thinking that actually, if I had more stuff, 
if my bank account was a bit healthier, then I could feel good about myself. I have better self-worth. My identity would be more secure, uh, and I would feel more fulfilled uh, and satisfied. And he goes on to show in his book, uh, or argue in his book, that actually uh, it's, it's, quite, it's quite deadly. It's, it's really damaging to your mental health if you are infected by that sort of thinking. Uh, and he takes a few pot shots. And in fact, it's not a brilliantly argued book, if I'm totally honest. It's a bit anecdotal. Um, but nevertheless, he takes some pot shots. Uh, he, uh, he shoots at an easy target. Uh, one easy target, as an example, is, is a guy called Sam, who is an investment banker in New York. Uh, he's made uh, shed loads of money in the stock market, lives in a penthouse in downtown Manhattan, has piles of money, can buy anything, do anything, go anywhere. And yet when he interviewed this guy, Sam, he discovers that actually Sam has a fairly serious recreational drug habit. Uh, Sam is addicted uh, to casual sex and can't seem to hold down a stable relationship. According to Oliver James, here's a classic example of someone suffering from full-blown affluenza. And it's damaging his life. It's damaging his life. Now, I would suggest that not many of us uh, in this room are suffering from full-blown affluenza. I don't think any of you are sitting daydreaming about the promotion and the next six-figure salary that you're about to enjoy. None of us are sitting dreaming, oh, I hope my numbers come in tomorrow and win the lottery. I don't think very few of us are suffering from full-blown affluenza. But we're not immune from it. We're not immune from it. So, give me a rest for my voice for a second. I want you to turn to your neighbor for 60 seconds. You have 60 seconds. What might some of the symptoms of affluenza look like at a very low level? Just turn to your neighbor. What might some of the symptoms, and we'll feed back in a second. Okay, I'm going to interrupt, interrupt your conversations there. Okay. Anyone want to share an observation, what they think might a symptom of affluenza thinking, been infected by that idea that thinking, if I have more stuff, I'll be happy. What, what, what might that look like? In 
generally you're just discontent with what you've got, always looking for the next thing, the best thing, the new thing. Yeah. Okay, yes, again, similar. So you're just covetous. Oh, look, they've got the next new thing. Now suddenly, I didn't even know that existed, but now I want it. Yeah. Anything else? Jealousy. Jealousy, yeah, it's related, yeah. Yeah, Claire? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little insight. Do you, we therapy session, we public therapy session. <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> Anything else? More frozen. Always offers shops closing sales. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And so suddenly what you've got, you're not satisfied with what you've got. Suddenly there's again back to your idea, discontent uh, in that area. Look, we can keep going with that. But what my, my point is simply that when we are honest with ourselves, when we are, we do a wee internal inventory of our desires, we see that actually we are affected. We are affected by low-level, mild forms. Not the full-blown thing, but definitely mild form affluenza. Um, and the question is, how do we deal with it? How do we deal with it? Well, if you read Oliver James's book, uh, he says therapy. That's the answer, therapy. And surprise, surprise, he's a psychologist, okay? So that, that's entirely unsurprising that that would be his answer. Uh, and look, there are some good things you can learn from therapy. Uh, there are some ways to learn how we tick and how to understand uh, the temptations that we feel, and there's lots of good things there. But what we have actually in this last portion uh, of Philippians, I think, is a far more fundamental, a far more effective uh, cure for affluenza, for affluenza. Now, I am a migraine sufferer. I don't get it very often, but I, I, I suffer from migraines, and I, I'm on this medication when I, when I get one. Uh, it's called Migralieve, and it's got two tablets. There's a pink one and a yellow one. Pink one for the headache, yellow one to help with the nausea. Well, what we've got here is a two-pill cure for affluenza. A two-pill cure for affluenza. And the first pill is this, learn contentment. Learn contentment. That's the first pill that Paul thinks you should swallow if you are suffering uh, from affluenza. What's Let's take a step back. What's the situation Paul finds himself? He's in prison, um, and uh, he's been languishing there. Uh, and the Philippians heard of his plight and have sent uh, a gift uh, carried with Epaphroditus uh, to probably money uh, and some support, uh, practical care. And actually, we need to remember that Prison in the ancient world is pretty different to incarceration today. So in incarceration today, you, you, may, you maybe have a couple of bunk beds, but you'll have a TV and you'll have your clothes and you'll, it'll be warm and you'll have food, so many meals a day and exercise and so on. That's not the way it worked in the ancient world. Food was not provided in prison. And so you relied on help from outside, friends, family, to come in and supply your needs and so when the Philippians hear that Paul is in prison, they rightly muster their resources so to, they, they can go and support him practically, lovingly, uh, in this way. 
Uh, and in many ways, as we said, this letter is, is prompted as a thank you letter. That's primarily what it is. And also to address some of the, the issues that he's learned uh, that's going on in, um, in the church at Philippi. But as um, David read uh, that little passage for us, you might be forgiven uh, with the th- by thinking that for thinking the thought that Paul must have missed the thank you letter writing 101 class, right? Because it actually sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it, the way he says it? Uh, certainly in the version I've got, the NIV here, it says, um, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you remembered me uh, uh, your con- and renewed your concern for me. Um, yeah, you give me this gift, but look, don't be under the impression I needed it in any way. I didn't, I didn't need it. Uh, and um, uh, I've got to the level of spirituality now where actually I don't, I don't worry about those sorts of practical things. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks anyway. Um, love and kisses, Paul. Isn't that, isn't that how it sounds when you initially read that? Uh, it sounds it sort of harsh. Uh, it sounds a little ungrateful. Um, but look, I want to suggest that it is actually really very, very helpful and not near as harsh as it initially sounds uh, to our ears. So, for example, the first little phrase, at last you have renewed your concern for me, renewed your help for me. Uh, Paul is not saying this as an, as sort of an exasperated way, well, it's about time. You know, that's, that's not the sense that you're meant to get when you read that, that, that clause. Rather, Paul is just saying, he's, I'm, I'm speaking about the last gift that you've given to me. In other words, there's been a big sequence of them, and I'm only saying thank you now primarily for the last one. You get the idea? Uh, I think that's what he clarifies uh, in, in the next, uh, I'm not saying this because I'm need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances. Uh, I know what it is to be in need. Um, sorry, uh, back up in verse 10. But you had uh, no opportunity uh, to show it, but you've given me this gift now. You get the idea? Paul has, is, is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the last in the sequence of gifts and kindnesses that you've shown me. Uh, and it's just up, to, up till now, there was maybe a bit of a gap in your, in your gifts uh, because you had no opportunity to give anything. And now that there was at the first sign, the first opportunity, you've rushed in, and I'm very grateful. That's how we're to read uh, verse 10. Paul clarifies again in verse 11. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content uh, in whatever circumstances. Uh, I think we need to be clear here. Paul is not saying, look, I'm, I didn't really need it. Um, what he is saying, however, um, is that he's not angling. I'm not saying thank you because I'm angling for another gift. Do you see that? I'm not, I'm not saying this, thank you, because I'm in need, further need. You get the idea? I'm, I'm, he's not, Paul wants to be very clear. I'm not, I'm not, this is not a begging letter for some further gift and further kindnesses. I'm very, very grateful for how kind you've been. But let me just take a step back, Paul is saying now, before I say some more about the gift that you gave, to say just something about generally about contentment. Something generally about contentment. And that's what he does. Uh, 
Uh, and so then he, can, he speaks uh, about uh, this idea of contentment that he has learned. Now, Paul is uh, not saying that he lives in some sort of absent reality. He's sort of so detached from the world that he's not really affected by circumstances. He's not saying, oh, you know, I was doing my devotions all morning and, you know, I I didn't even notice that I didn't have any breakfast. You know, that's not what Paul's saying. He knows what it is uh, to to be in both ends of the spectrum, to to have all his needs supplied, to be in great need, uh, and he knows the pluses and minuses of both situations. He's not distant from reality. That's not what Paul's saying at all. But what he is saying is that in every situation, whether having a lot or having a little, he has learned to be content. He has learned to be content. So when he has a lot, he is not still covetous for more. When he has a lot, he's not desperately holding on to what he's got. And when he's got little, he's content with the meager rations that he has. In fact, elsewhere, Paul can say, uh, if I've got food and clothing, happy with that, content with that. Content with a little. Now, I want you to compare that to the culture of our age. The culture of our age. Um, I read this week uh, of an advertising executive who described the job uh, of his... PR advertising company. He said, this is what we do. He said, our business is not so much to match your needs with a product. Rather, it is to create needs you didn't know you had before. It's not, our job is not just to match needs with a product. Our job is to create needs. And, and I think we see that, don't we, when we watch, uh, we watch TV Uh, We're tempted to think, and the message that we constantly are being bombarded with is your happiness, if you want to be one of these shining happy people in the advertisement, if you you want that, then look, all you've got to do is buy this little bottle of perfume and, you know, you will be like that. Uh, If you want to have uh, a really fun, relaxing home life, then actually you need this TV bundle. Uh, that will be great for you. If you want to be uh, one of these uh, hipster, very cool people, then you too need to buy an Apple Mac. Yeah. You just will not, you won't look right in the, in the coffee shop with just a PC. That just would be inappropriate. You get the idea? You've been sold not just a product, you've been sold a lifestyle. If you want to have that lifestyle, if you want to be happy, then actually you need to buy this. In other words, your ha- the message constantly we're bombarded with is your happiness hinges on having those things. If you're not happy now, which obviously you're not, is the message, obviously you're not, um, you're obviously not content, uh, then you need this thing. And suddenly you're left thinking, well, you know what, you know, maybe, I, maybe, I, maybe I would be happier with that. Maybe that would be, maybe that would be nice. Yeah, yeah, that would be nice. I didn't know that thing even existed two, two minutes ago, but yeah, that'll be nice. And then on top of that, we're sold, another message that we're sold is that we're sold that luxury equals necessity. Luxury equals necessity. We've talked about it already, that dissatisfaction with what you've got. 
my phone, it's a good phone, it's a smartphone. It can take and receive calls, send text messages. It can even surf the internet really pretty well. But then suddenly you're being bombarded with the message, that's, that's not enough, you need it. You need a new one, you need a better one. Slightly bigger one, slightly shinier one. Maybe one where the, the screen goes all the way around the sides. <gasps> Wouldn't that be amazing? Right, you get the idea. We've been sold that, that actually luxury equals necessity. We, we need this if we are to be happy and we are to be content. And so one, one writer puts it like this. Uh, we spend money we don't have to buy stuff we don't need to impress people we don't like. I think that's pretty good. Um, and so just think about it for a moment. When put in sort of stark terms like I've put them, you may think, well, look, I, I'm not really affected like that. I'm, not, you know, I'm more content uh, than that. But let's, let's do a little thought experiment just for a moment. Okay, imagine you're going to work tomorrow. Most of you are working. Uh, imagine you're going to work tomorrow and you're told that your salary has been doubled. How do you feel? Thinking of all the things I could buy, thinking of a holiday I could go on. But imagine you went tomorrow and you're told that there's been dramatic cuts to the company, dramatic cuts to the board, dramatic cuts to whatever, and your salary has been halved. How do you feel? What point would you need to get to, what rise in your salary would you need to arrive at that you would think, then I would have all I need? If I had that, then I would have all I need. Or the other end of the spectrum, what is the lowest baseline that you think you need below which you think, I, could, I couldn't survive without that. If you have an upper line and a lower line, and if your lower line is not food and clothes on my back, then actually you too are affected by affluenza. You are. Paul says, he, however, has learned the secret of contentment. And notice you've got to learn it. You can't just decide now, I'm going to be content tomorrow. I'm just going to be content. I'm going to flick a switch, click my fingers. I will be content tomorrow. No, 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 no. You need to learn this. You need to grow in this. You need to devote yourself to this. It does not come naturally. In fact, verse 13 Verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, as a minister going in and out of people's homes, I have seen that verse on more fridge magnets than I'd like to count, right? It's just everywhere. It's a, you know, it's a wonderful little phrase. You know, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. In fact, that's, that's probably a, not a bad translation. Some older translations say things like, I can do, uh, I can do everything through him who gives me strength, or I can do anything through him who gives me strength. And this is a verse which is lovely. 
and is so often horribly, horribly, horribly abused as it's ripped, bleeding out of its context and used in horrible ways. I have heard this verse used and given to those who are ill to say, you should not live like an ill person. You should live as a well person because you can do anything. So God gives you strength. Or the person who's horribly unqualified for a job uh, and they're told, no, no, you, you, you should do it anyway. You know, you do all things through him who gives you strength. That's none of those ways are the ways Paul means this verse. Not at all. What is the thing that, can, that God is giving him strength for? Contentment. Contentment. You see, we don't get contentment by just finding some inner peace inside. Contentment needs to be given to you from the outside. God is the one who supplies contentment, who empowers it uh, within us. We don't have the ability to muster up contentment on our own. It will not happen. Paul has learned it. Uh, it's taken time and effort. Uh, and in many ways, we, we, he doesn't go into the details, the mechanics of how we get contentment here. But actually, when you step back and you look at the whole letter again, you get some pretty big clues. So what was... He, remember in Friday night, as we looked in chapter 1, and we saw Paul languishing in a prison cell, and yet he's smiling, smiling at the thought of the gospel going out, smiling at the thought uh, of others being motivated to share it, soldiers getting to know it for the first time. Because Paul has fostered and rehearsed and seen and savors the fact that God is in control. He's in control. He is working all things, even bad things, together for good. And because I know that and I rehearse that in my mind, I can be content here. I can be content here. Or as we uh, look through into uh, chapter 3, we saw about and thought about the race and the finish of the race and keeping your eyes fixed on the, on the, the finish line and remembering the promise of the Lord Jesus that he is coming again and he will cause us to, to be with him forever and be like him forever, which can lead us to be content now. Like, okay, things are going to work out in the end. I, I, can, I can be content now in this situation. Or yesterday, as we, we thought about the Lord being near, being with us, being at hand, which when we re- remember every time we pray, God hasn't forgotten about me. He's with me to strengthen and assure me, comfort me. I can be content. But it's only as we rehearse these things in our minds to ourselves and to one another that we have the capacity to be content. We find our contentment through him, perhaps more accurately, in him. As we are in Christ, that we can learn to be content. 
Paul has learned it. It had to be learned, and it can be learned. You may think, well, look, I'm just... Some people are just seem to be temperamentally more happy-go-lucky and are just, yeah, fine, look, yeah. My car's broken down, yeah, fine. Uh, just, got, just lost my job, I'll find another one. Uh, some people are just temperamentally like this. This is not to do with temperament. This is not to do with temperament. Paul is saying that anyone, anyone can learn, if you're a Christian who rehearses the truth of the gospel, can learn the secret of contentment. I want to suggest that there's nothing that is uh, the greater first step cure to affluenza, that discontent with my lot in life and the longing for more physically or, um, and um, materially is this first step to learn the secret of contentment. There was a third century Christian called uh, Cyprian, and he wrote a letter uh, to Donatus, his friend, uh, and he wrote this. It's a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world, but I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and good people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy and wisdom which is a thousand times better than any pleasures of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians, and I am one of them. A lovely sentiment. Learned a secret of life, of wisdom and joy. That is what Paul is pointing us towards as we learn the secret of contentment. But there's a second pill that we need to take if we're to be fully cured of affluenza. And the second pill runs from verses um, 14 down to 20. And that is practice giving. Practice giving. First pill was learn contentment. Second pill, practice giving. Paul is saying, look, um, my contentment doesn't hinge on your gift. Um, but look, I'm very sincerely grateful. Thank you for what you've done. Uh, thank you for sharing in all my troubles. And now he takes the opportunity to step back and recall the history of their help. Because this is not just a one-off gift. This is a, they have a, a track record of being kind and generous to Paul. Verse 15, moreover, as you Philippians know in the early days uh, of our acquaintance with the gospel, of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, remember, Philippi is in Macedonia. So when he left Philippi, for even when I went to Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Uh, Back on Friday night, we read a little bit from, from Acts 16 uh, about the church being set up in Philippi and how it was really difficult. Paul preached the gospel, but he met severe opposition. He was thrown in prison. Uh, he was beaten. Uh, and then finally, he was ushered out of the town. And so what he did is he went down the road to the next town, Thessalonica, and there started a new work of sharing the gospel, saw a little church planted and so on. And while he was there, this church 
in Philippi that has just been planted. It's just got going. Their first instinct was to hear, Paul is just down the road. He's probably in need down there. Let's send a gift, a financial gift to support him. That was their first instinct uh, was to do that. Um, Paul turns this then from a thank you for one specific gift into a general commendation for their general generosity uh, to him. And again, Paul's clear. He's not buttering them up in order that they'd give him another gift. Uh, It's not that I desire your gifts, but what I desire is that more be credited to your account. This is what Paul was talking about right back in chapter 1 when he talked about, referred to them as partners in the gospel or uh, having fellowship with them. Uh, you see, Paul, uh, they, sorry, shared in the gospel uh, not just by believing it. You know, they did that, but it wasn't just that. Uh, but they were partners in the gospel because they also helped support the proclamation of it. And so they were quick to support Paul uh, prayerfully. Uh, from chapter 1, we know they were praying for him, but clearly, financially, uh, and in a, and an ongoing way. And Paul then takes, uh, makes a general, couple of general comments on giving. First, he wants to say that giving is gain. Giving is gain. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Again, I have been a long time since I did accountancy, uh, but debit expenses, credit gains, right? Debit expenses, credit gains. So it's a pretty shocking thing for Paul to say. So as they come and they open their ledgers, I'm sure some of them were organized in Philippi as well. We have the, the details people almost in every church. So there'll be someone who was the treasurer in, in Philippi, opens the ledger, looks down, gift to Paul, however much money that they gave. And that's in the debit column, right? That's, that was, that's money that's gone out. That's a negative figure. We don't have that money anymore. That's debit, expense. Paul's saying, no, 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 wrong side of the ledger. That money that you give away, yes, you don't have it anymore, but it's, it's actually in the credit column. It's a gain. How, how does that work? And Paul's making the point Uh, That when we give to God and give to the work of the gospel, God is no man's debtor. God's no man's debtor. When we give to the work of the gospel, God will always more than restore, more than reward. Paul, I think, here is referring to eternal rewards. Giving. Uh, Just like anything else we give. Yes, we give treasure, but we also give time and talent. Um, Whatever we give in faithful service to God, he's no man's debtor and he will always reward and restore. Giving is gain. And then he goes on to say, uh, change the metaphor, and then he goes on to say giving as a pleasant sacrifice. Verse 18, I have received from Epaphroditus Uh, The gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Back in the Old Testament, there was um, 
details of all different sacrifices that the, the people of God in Israel had to give. Most of them were animal sacrifices uh, that were really connected with atoning for sin, or at least pointing forward to how sin would be atoned for fully and finally in, in Jesus Christ. But there were also different types of offerings on top of that. There were also thank you offerings. When, it, when, it, when an individual worshiper was so filled with joy and thanks for what God had given to them, they were perfectly permitted within the law. In fact, it was recommended within the law, commanded even within the law, that they could give a thank you offering. Come and bring a gift to God to say thank you for what you've done for me. And these sorts of phrases are used to describe thank you offerings. Fragrant offerings, pleasing aroma, pleasant to God. Paul is saying when you give money to gospel work, it's a parallel to a thank you offering in the Old Testament. It is something that smells good to God. Think well, I just revealing my preferences here. Think freshly baked bread, coffee, bacon. Smells that are good, delightful. Smells that bring a smile to your face when the kitchen is filled with them. That is the reaction God has when we give to gospel work. God is pleased. They're, they are pleasing to him. Now, Christians have a pretty bad reputation when it comes to asking for money, don't we? In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm almost relieved. I'm, I'm going to preach through this in my home church, and I'll be in a bit more of a sticky wicket then because it'll sound like I'm singing from a supper. But I'm, I'm, I'm quite relaxed here that actually none of you are involved in giving money to my church or to me in any way. But, but Christians do have a pretty bad reputation for asking for money, don't they? Look, we're doing, we're doing a big, big drive for money. Can you give? Please give. Please give. We, we need the money. We're maybe fixing the roof or extending something or whatever. Um, please give. But the message underlying is almost always give the money because we need it. Give the money because we need it. Notice, Paul, that's not his logic. You should give them money. You should give money to gospel work. Why? Because it's for your benefit, and it makes God smile. I, want to give, I, want, I tell you what, that inspires me to give a lot more than we need it. Doesn't it? It's for your benefit, and it makes God smile. This is a great uh, antidote to affluenza. Um, Here's your two pills then. When we are seduced by the worldly sort of currents, uh, we start to believe the messages that are, we're bombarded with every day, that you, you can and will only be happy if you've got more stuff. Here's your antidote. First, learn contentment. Learn contentment. Rehearse how good God has been to you that you've got all you need right now. And then learn to give money away 
rather than grasping for it or tightly holding on to it, give it away. Give it away. And when you do, it will not be your master anymore. It will not be your master. It will be a way for you to remind yourself that God is my master. I want to please him. I want to hear his commendation one day. Not just fill my life up with more stuff. And so a question I have for you then is, are you currently giving to the work of the gospel? Are you currently giving to the work of the gospel? Are you currently giving to the work of your local church as the first pass for that? And are you currently giving to other avenues of mission, friends, missionaries that you're supporting? Are you doing that? If you're not, then Paul wants to inspire you. He wants you to be cured from affluenza. And he wants you to give because you know it's for, for good, for the advance of the gospel, the changing of people's lives, the changing of destinies. And it will be for your gain, and it will make God smile. Or perhaps you're already, you know, as most of us do, we at some point set up a standing order. We set it up like 10 years ago. Uh, but it's, but we're, yeah, we're given. Yeah, we're given. Fine, it's all going in. But we never review it. Never review it. Have my, has my salary changed? Has my circumstances changed? Do I want to review this? Maybe give some more? There's a question only you can answer. But I encourage you off the back of this, it's something you need to think about. Think, need to think about. But you may be thinking, things are pretty tight at the minute, to be honest. Um, I'm not sure if I can... Maybe I should cut back my giving. Maybe I should... I definitely, don't, definitely can't give any more. Um, just read verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. You have a Father who cares for you, who will provide for you. It's not up to you ultimately to provide for yourself. Yes, you want to be responsible and responsible for those who are dependent on you. But actually, ultimately, you are not providing for yourself. You are trusting in your Father who is kind and who will provide. Do you see how these then become a wonderful antidote to affluenza? A condition and a virus I think we all suffer from at low levels. But let's take a moment uh, in silence uh, just to, to think, to confess, to ask for God's strength that we would be content, uh, to ask for God's motivation that we would be generous, uh, and then I'll close our time in a word of prayer.
Father, we thank you that he who was rich beyond all measure for our sakes became poor so that by his poverty we might be rich. And we are rich, and we want to thank you for the riches that we have. We thank you for uh, the riches, the physical, material riches we enjoy, uh, having been born in this part of the world, uh, where we live in a land of peace and prosperity, where we uh, have jobs, and even if we don't have jobs, there are social services to, to, to care for us, uh, churches and friends and family to help us. Father, we thank you for uh, all that you've given us. Help us to learn with Paul the secret of being content. And Father, we pray that following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus then, who for the good of others gave that we might be those people who are known famous for being generous. Generous not because we want to put other people in our debt, not as a power play, but generous because we want to be wholeheartedly committed to the work of the gospel, because we want to hear your commendation, and know your smile. And so please, challenge us, change us, we pray. We thank you for this wonderful letter of Philippians, uh, a letter filled with, with joy, filled with challenge, um, filled with a wonderful vision of the Lord Jesus. Uh, please help us to see and savor him all the more. Uh, please, may we go away from this weekend, not just with, with minds that are fuller, um, with more, more information, but with a greater knowledge of you, which has led to a greater love for you, which has led to a greater desire to please you. As we go back out into our families and our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our circles of friends, Father, we thank you for being so kind to us this weekend. Thank you for speaking to us. And we offer you our praise and our thanks and our devotion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.